add a bit of sunshine to your home with Easy Living Furniture's Garden Furniture Sale with stunning dining sets, cracking egg chairs and relaxing sun loungers that are in stock and ready for delivery there really is something for everyone and with an extra 10% off sale prices and free delivery over 399 now really is the time to let your garden shine Garden Sale now on Visit Easy Living Furniture Don't miss out Find your local store online at easylivingfurniture.ie Leia Healthcare Looking after you always Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry Hello welcome to Real Health with me Carl Henry in association with Leia Healthcare. Folks, this week's episode, another in one of my favourite types of episodes that we do, the Life Lessons series. And I have to say, it's one of my all-time favourite radio presenters and someone I've been wanting to have on the show for a really, really long time. He's been a mainstay in RT Radio 1 for the last 30 years, with his mix of music and chat, and he's presented TV shows and written books along the way. He's a favourite of Irish people up and down the country and a legend in his own right. And with a new book called That Place We Call Home Out Now, John Creedon, welcome to Real Health. How's it going? Absolutely great, Carl. Couldn't be better. Thankfully, thankfully, I know it's been a very tough year for um, for a lot of people. So it's certainly not with smugness. It's kind of with gratitude that I say I'm doing great. It's been a very good year. It's been a very busy year. And uh, no, I am. Uh, as I get older, I'm getting more and more grateful every morning when I open my curtains Hail, rain or snow, I think, yay, Ireland. And I'm up and trading and I've been very fortunate. So no, life is good, life is good. And the book is good, so it's all good. We're going to well, we're gonna chat through your career in a minute. I want to start with the book, though. It's really interesting. It's around that, kind of, that place we call home and the importance of a place and what that means to people. That sense of belonging is really important to you, isn't it? It is. I, I think a sense of belonging is, uh, is a hugely valuable thing. It's a little bit like forgiveness. You can't make yourself have it. You either drift into it or there's an aha moment when you go wow i love being ukrainian or whatever it is or it's something you pick up from your family by osmosis really i suppose you're the sum of all the parts so i guess if you spend a lifetime living in a town you probably grow to love it and hate it and everything else it's that just that relationship so that's that's the title of the book all right there's the big bold plug hey fantastic that place we call home i think it's just a line in the book someplace that's where the title came from but um, in in essence, this is about place names. It's the evolution of Irish place names. They're not all Gaelic. We've had Jewish influence. We've had a whole range of influences in this country. The Spanish, of course, left a little mark. The Vikings left a lovely light footprint on Irish place names. And you can hear them straight away. Names like Helvig Head, uh, places like Tuscar Rock, meaning Jagged Tooth Rock in Old Norse. That, that might come in handy to take um, all the obvious ones, the VX fjords and the Vassar fjords and all those other place names are on the coast. So, uh, and the, the Normans, of course, left their, their influence. Boutemont, uh, Buttevant, County Cork, comes from the, the French. <laughs> Boute en avant, which was the, uh, the, the catchphrase or the, the motto, I guess, of the Dubarry family who came in with Strongbow. They were given lands down there and their, their, their motto was strike while advancing. Boute en avant. And became the name of the town. And for years I wondered, was it Bot or something? Was it Bo or something? So I just found place names always interesting. And I suppose having lived in Dublin for 13 years and then returned home, um, it was like returning to the embrace of a mother. Not because Cork is that special, um, but because it's home. So it's about that place called home, wherever that might be. If it's the 13th floor of a block of flats, if it's where your mates live, if it's where your, you know, where your granddad died. 
um, there's, I suppose, an attachment, which is something we're all trying to shed, but there's an attachment to a place. And I genuinely feel, Carl, like that it is, it's, it's not key to good health, but in terms of our mental health, to know where you're from. When you stand on Hill 16, you might be a lonely guy during the week, but when the dogs run out and your tribe are on the hill, there's a tingle down the spine that says, I'm safe. I'm with my people. When, when, when I was a young man, say with four small children trying to eke out a living in Dublin on short contracts and 30 quid a week, a couple of weeks on the dole, back into pennies working as a cleaner, like doing all the things I had to do to survive. Whenever I came south, when I crossed that Mason-Dixon line at Kilbehenny, where the, where the sign says, welcome to County Cork, even if I was on my own in the car, I would give a rebel yell. Yeah! I'm home. They can't get me now, kind of thing. So uh, I'm 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 married to a Cork woman, so I, <laughs> I I I totally get the thing that Cork is more special than ever else in the country. Yeah. I've been told that on a regular. You're basis. living with it. There's probably a red line down the middle of the bed. Is there? This is Cork, and this is pretty, not Cork. Pretty much. <laughs> So, and I suppose th- this year more than ever before, we that real sense of togetherness and getting to know your country, we've seen that this year because we are all at home. We've holidayed at home over the course of the summer and you saw that everywhere. People were experiencing new things that were here forever, but we never really ex- knew yeah, of them. Sure. And being that, that sense of working together to get the numbers down, working together to conquer COVID, that's, we really have come back together this year and it's been really important for our mental health. Hugely important. Um, I would say, like, just in terms of mental health in general terms, young people are having a tough time. It's tough. It was, it's always tough being a kid. Uh, being a youngster or a student nowadays is really tough. So as well as the responsibilities that youngsters might have, uh, we, they also need us to be a little bit simpatico. It is tough. If you haven't kissed your girlfriend in three weeks, that would crack me up completely. So I can understand what I can't understand, in fact, but I, I appreciate what it might be like to be a youngster today. Certainly during, um, during lockdowns, I think we probably learned an awful lot uh, about stuff we don't need. Like I'm a great man for the pub and I haven't been in a pub for youngs. And it doesn't actually bother me. No one has walked up and made a nasty comment to me on the street or in work. But once or twice in pubs along the way, someone says, you're going to get a big job above an arc to eat. So that doesn't happen to me in other places. So I've come to realize, oh, that's the danger of pubs. And there's a lot of pain killing goes on in pubs. And as, as I think it was Aristotle said, for observation to take place, you've got to put distance between the observer and the observed. So when you don't do something for a while, you kind of say, hmm. And for a lot of people, they rediscovered their family. I think a lot of couples, now I know it's been very difficult for other households, but a lot of couples, myself included, I loved having that time just when we go out the back and have an old shot of coffee. And that's something else I appreciate is having an out the back. Um, so um, I think, yeah, and the Irish rediscovered Ireland in a huge way. We were working. We, we've got another, apart from the book, it's been a busy year, apart from the book, we have another uh, series of Creedence Atlas in the can. It's just about there now, and it's going out on RT1 in February. So we did travel very carefully and very slowly within the country. And constantly you're reminding people, sure, I'd love to do a selfie, but I, I hate to say this, but you need to be seven feet away. Would you mind? No, 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 further, please. <laughs> so there were those challenges. Uh, we couldn't do a lot of the big like, kind of festival events that, that we often do. So I think we still got a great series. But one of the things is that um, I could see everywhere I went, bumper to bumper. Can't, this is during the open period there in the middle of the summer in August, say, there, there, thereabouts. That's when we got out in that window. 
And um, bumper to bumper, camper vans, cars, holidays. Every now and then I'd see a yellow rage and I'd wonder, are they British? And when they get out, <laughs> sure enough, they were naughty. So it was like um, the Irish were rediscovering Ireland at a huge level. And a couple of people have said to me, I've had the occasional text to the radio show saying things like, Jesus, we were around the burden. We didn't realize how beautiful Ireland was. We've always liked your shows. Mary kept saying to me, it's a pity we have got John Creedon in the band to tell us what, you know, Ballyvahan uh, <laughs> means or whatever. Ballyvahan, incidentally, is the town of Bachain, as I understand it. I thought it was a saint's name, but I think it's a beekeeper, as in Bach, as in bee, you know. But anyway, I, I looked kind of cracking the code. I found another amazing one up in Ballyvahan, actually. I was doing a story about the burn, and I saw a signpost saying Boston, one mile. I went, Boston? But underneath it, in the Irish, it said, Monin Nagligan, which translates as the little bog. Mon, Monin is a little bog, Nagligan of the skulls. So when I met my, my, uh, my, my contributor, I asked her, she said, well, I think it's called Boston because that's where the men used to gather when, when they would walk together to the boat, boat to Boston. It's not even a village. There's not even a church there. It's really only a crossroads and a couple of houses. The Monin Nagligan, she said, I believe there was some slaughter up there years ago, but I have no idea. I got to go back. How a place could be called in Irish, the bog of the skulls, and in English, Boston. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Let's chat about you now. I'm fascinated by people, and I'm intrigued by chatting to people around their lives and what they've done. And people will know you as a broadcaster, both on TV, both on radio, with a kind of eclectic sense of music over the last 30 years. Uh, how did you get into it? And was it something that you always wanted to do from a young age, or was it something you fell into and discovered that you were very good at it? Um, no, I wanted to do it. I think um, when I think back, say, to being a little boy, um, I'm 61 now, so when I think back to, say, you know, like the, the mid-60s as the little boy in Cork, um, radio was a huge thing. Um, I, I, you know, life is a lottery. You don't get to pick your parents, but I, my numbers definitely came up. While there would have been challenges be times, and I'm sure I was a right pain in the backside when I was like 14 and knew it all. Never asked to be born anyway. Um, when I was at that stage, I'm sure I was tough going, and be times my parents could annoy me as well. But for the most part, they were gentle people. They were good. They were very literate, even though my mother would have come from way out on the Bear Peninsula and not have had a great education. She was very sophisticated in her own way, very good in health. You'd have loved her. Very good in medicine. And people, all fellas keep telling me how beautiful she was. And I've seen the photographs. Um, you know, I remember like the number of fellas who would say to me, I used to cross Cork just to have one look at your mother. So she was lovely and quiet and introspective. And my father was a big, gregarious, hand on the hips, 20 stone. I'm probably built like him. But both of them live within me still. Um, they rarely argue, but they see things differently. My mother would say, shh. Just listen, John, just listen. And my father would say, tell them the one about. <laughs> so that goes on all the time in there for me. So back then, um, they had a great bra for radio. And we always went to bed with the sound of the radio. I used to love Sunday nights. There used to be the sad music they used to play around 8 o'clock. It was like the music they played when De Valera died. Heavy juice, <laughs> loads of cellos and sadness. But then you had programs like Get an Earful of This. And you had um, the Forerunner to Late Date. So you had music, you had Larry Gogan in the afternoons occasionally. So it was that portal through which you were able to get out of a black and white Ireland because daytime for me 
was school um, and I didn't flourish in school. I was almost too young. I was the, I was like always two years too young. I was 11 when I went to boarding school. So school never really worked hugely well for me until one teacher told me I was brilliant. And all of a sudden I was a swan. So um, I was always drawn to that, to the jokes on getting here for the days, to Des Kyo, to Bosco Hogan, to Frank Kelly. And, would, and we, I used to make up these little plays and little sketches that my brother and myself would do on cassettes, you know, and uh, so there was always that draw. Even Luxembourg was a teenager. Before we had pop music in Ireland, we had Luxembourg, and that was just such a romantic notion. It was the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, and it was Prince Henry and all this kind of stuff, and who wouldn't want that? So, as I say in the book, actually, funnily enough, in the opening notes, I kind of point out that even though I grew up in a Gaelic tradition, my father was a beautiful Irish speaker, never forced it upon us. He was a lovely, gentle, funny gas man. My mother had a great love of Paul Cullum and all those, po those poems and the love of plays, love the scenery, because she gave him a beautiful part of the world. But, um, but for me, I suppose it was, um, it, it really was that. It was that, it, it was that possibility of doing something where it didn't hurt. You didn't get your hands dirty and, you didn't get beaten up, and so I was I was drawn towards it, and it was that escape, it was that romantic, creative space of my childhood. And I, and what was the moment where you where you got your your break, for want of a better word? I know you know you were in college when you, you had to leave college when you yeah. were nineteen to get a job. Yeah. You, you know you became a father yeah. at a young age. Where does that where does that sense of, where does that the big the big break come from? What 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 at what point did it happen? Not, not unlike Bruce Springsteen. For my 19th birthday, I got a union card and a wedding coat, except I never got the union <laughs> card. I was a yellow pack. <laughs> so um, so the break, I suppose, uh, and if I had any advice to offer, and I'd be slow to advise anybody to do anything. But for youngsters, I often said to my own four girls, hey, look, wherever you're at is grand. Anybody at 16 who says I want to be a civil engineer is either blessed or trying to, or trying to please somebody else, right? Uh, it's very hard to know what you want to be, and I'm still not sure. And I think maybe I might become a lumberjack eventually. Um, no, I would love to be a lumberjack, and I'd love to be a kind of a forest ranger and save baby bears and do that kind of stuff. That's really what I'd love to do next. Anyway, but so you should always be open to change. And even though we have commitments, and as I said, as you were saying, at a very early age, I was a dad. I was in there like pushing buggies at twenty, and uh, and um, I had four children, like you know, by my mid-twenties and no regrets, they're great. But I often said to the girls, you know, like, no pressure, school reports, no pressure. Um, but but the, the, the key advice I would give them is to avoid at all costs addiction. Keep an eye on it. You won't see it sneaking up. So it's, it's okay to have fun and all that, but be cute. Uh, don't take on uh, an addiction, um, a partner with an addiction, uh, a huge mortgage that ties you down. And at 40, you can turn around and become a heart torturist. There's no problem. The catch is if you get locked in, if you get locked in, uh, and I would include amongst that where possible an unplanned pregnancy, because all of a sudden, you know, you have now commitments and you've got to kind of stick with what you've got to do. And so in that regard, I suppose I did make life easy for myself that I took on all the commitments for us before I had the money. And, uh, not that I'm that much money, but, but um, and so I always had to kind of carry the responsibility, say, of supporting six people as I went and did my next comedy sketch for 20 quid or whatever it was. So, but it's, I think it's stands still. At this remove, it's easy. There were a lot of sleepless nights back then. 
Um, but so my, my advice, if that's what it is, would be to travel light. Don't get too bogged down with, with, with banks, with, um, with things that you have to carry. And if you can travel light, you can turn around like that and get off at Limerick Junction and go and come back and go someplace else. And so I've done it with, with a lot of responsibilities on my shoulders. But really, because I started so young, I was out the gap fairly young. So my gap year really has been the last 15 years when I'm kind of traveling the world and, and I'm off to Malaysia. Not, not so much this year, but so this has been my gap year. And um, the, the question you asked really was about um, about advice for young people, wasn't it? So, yeah, and you're... Your advice there is something that we've seen on a regular basis. So whether it's for me, Holmer Hertig, whether it's Mary Kennedy, whether it's Alan Clayton, it's you know that sense of just you know not to worry. That that sense of ease is 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 something that that comes through time and time and time again. You're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. And and in terms of your own career, that big break of getting into radio, when the big break okay. happened. Okay. So uh, the, the advice is keep pointing yourself roughly towards towards where you want to be. And at this stage of my life, I'm very close to where I want to be. Not quite the, uh, the, the forest ranger yet, but, but I'm traveling the country. I'm meeting people. I'm chatting to people over five bar gates. I'm learning from people. Um, Ireland is my university. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm researching a story about it could be ancient caves, and I'm in there. And So I, I, I really am ballpark where I should be. I'm playing records on the radio like I dreamt of as a kid. And I'm traveling Ireland and learning things. So that's, I think, because I kept on roughly pointing myself towards what I wanted to do. I may have had to work in a factory to pay the bills, but I'd always be hanging out with someone who also collected records. Or So if you'd like to be an actor, for example, if that's your dream, well, then start. And what may happen is you may end up being the best set designer in Europe. Who knows? You may end up doing voiceovers for animated cartoons for children and love it. You, you will be close to it. And, um, and and that is as good as it gets. So for me, that's what I kept doing. So I was working with bands. I was trying to scratch a living by promoting gigs, small gigs, and they freaked me out. I discovered a lot about myself there that really I do suffer a little from anxiety and the thought of me hosting a gig tonight and if someone got stabbed and what happens if no one shows up and I better have the money to pay the band before I... So that's not for me. I even did a little bit of management along the way. And no, I can't. I can barely organize my own holidays. So I learned, yeah, I'm not going to be a manager of anything. So for me, the big break came when uh, having uh, tried too young and too late in many ways, I, I, was, I missed the deadline for 2FM. Um, fortunately, fortunately, because I think Radio 1 is more naturally my home. Um, some years later, having trudged along in factories and working in the city library, an ad appeared and billboards appeared with a picture of Gay Byrne saying RT, RT is looking for new presenters. And I said, I'll have a go at that. Um, I think I did, even though I say so myself, even 30 years on, 33 years on, is it? Yeah, 1987. I did um, a very good demo tape, I thought. I did it on a disco deck, but I put in a few promos kind of illustrating that I had other ideas. And one was called for a series called Black and Blue, the story of um, the Afro-American through their music. I did another one about um, how landscape influences music. And the point I was making in that little segment was, I remember distinctly saying, my piano teacher, Mrs. Uh, well, sorry, Mrs. Max Sweeney, used to say that the fjords of his native Norway inspired the music of Greek. 
I said, I had no idea what it meant at the time, but now I get it. As America opened up, all the rhythms music embraced were the work songs of the guys working on the railways, Sam Cooke, um, to the pony trot rhythm of the cowboys, hang the key on the bunkhouse door, cause we'll be late tonight, onto the hobo songs with the clickety-clack of the train, you know, uh, the walking blues, well, I'm walking to New Orleans, and these are all the rhythms that entered right up to the 1950s with bands like the Cadillacs singing Bombay Doo. You could be sitting in the back of a plush Cadillac with those. So I threw those in there along with the other bits I was asked to do. And sure enough, they, they asked me to come up for an audition. It was a really long process. It took six months. There were several interviews, auditions. Um, the smell of RT when I arrived in there was just amazing. The smell of timber and mahogany and and it was fantastic. Oh, the radio centre. Yeah. I, I never thought I'd get it, but I kept yeah, yeah. going. And eventually it was whittled down to 16 of us who were put on a, a training and assessment course, it was called. And I had no money, but I had four kids in Cork. So I used to sleep on the floor of a friend's flat over in Rat Mines and in Harrods Cross with other friends and go over to my course every day and hope against hopes. I was totally focused. I was just trying to be brilliant the best I could. And um, when the white smoke went up, I got a call and I was told, you are the swan. Um, can you start uh, in two weeks' time taking over uh, from, I don't know who it was. It was like it was drive time. It was Pat Kenny's show, but it was to become music on the move for the summer. And that was the first gig. And yeah, these were all very short contracts. And I struggled along with that within a few months. Um, Meg, the baby, was born. And the whole gang of us moved to, to Dublin into rented accommodation and scratched away like that for a couple of years. And... Then I had these mad comedy ideas that go right back to my childhood, I suppose. And I went to Jeremy Ryan and his producer, Willie O'Reilly, when they were opening up um, because I'd lost the gig in Radio 1. It was a change of management and I was gone. So all of a sudden, I was looking for Rath Farnham on my roadmap of Dublin and signing on the dole over in Nutgrove. And I went back in and met the Jerry Ryan's team and said, I got some mad ideas. Include this one for a very kind of high camp car hairdresser who lives with his man, <laughs> and they were saying, Brad, we'll take it, you know? So, and that became a huge hit very quickly. And uh, so within a couple of weeks, I was on the late late. So, so it was, so it was uh, the irrepressible John Creedon. That's who I am, I think. <laughs> And amazing, and, and you know, it's one of the things that to be adaptable and just to be, you know, like you said, to be around the things that you want to do and just to be able to adapt and to go with it. Um, spirituality is something that that's very important to you. I know that, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, and and, and get your get your thoughts, yeah. On it. I think, um, why, why is it so important? Well, I, I saw something on Twitter during the week, and I thought everybody who tweets anything should say, I feel or I believe or I understand, or as the say, this is how I understand it. Because uh, no one knows for sure unless you've died and come back, then you can tell us all who really knows. So I don't bog myself down hugely with the meaning of life, but it seems to me that all the great religions and, um, and all the decent people are all pointing roughly the same direction. When I say decent, we're all decent. I'm saying the happy people, the people who are settled, uh, the people who are loving, the people who are forgiving, all loosely point the same direction, whether it's Jesus, who walked in Nazareth 2,000 years ago, a real guy, um, Dalai Lama, today, uh, Buddha, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to get political or anything about it, but just, um, so I, I'm interested in, in what they might have to say, and then I test it in the light of my own experience, and I would say, yeah, I have found that too, 
that most of the people who send me a nasty tweet or a nasty text are actually hurting themselves. And I'm reminded, ah, yeah, the old Buddhist maxim, for every finger that points, there are three pointing back at the pointer. And there's a bad energy from the... So anyway, um, so in that regard, I would like to think, and I'm, this is not a, an idle brag, um, that forgiveness comes easy to me. It always did. Um, you know, I, 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 there's an old friend of mine, uh, without giving too much away, who's no longer with us, who ripped me off along the way. And I kind of just let it go because I knew we were both skint at the time. And and he has other qualities, and and we became like that. We never ever spoke about it. It never came up, never came up. But at the time, he was vulnerable. So if I was seventeen and I was giving you lip outside a bar, I'm so sorry. That's where I was at the time. So anybody that's hurt me along the way, that's where they were at the time. And I came across a beautiful thing in I think it might be Eckhart Tolle's Prayer of the Frog or something like that, where he says. And I'm almost quoting here. He says, if you were born into her family at her time with her DNA makeup, her life uh, experiences and her level of consciousness, you would walk, talk and behave exactly as she does. For God's sake, be compassionate. So that's even the Christian brothers who leathered me and everything else. Understand them. Don't hate them. Understand them. Understand your enemy, even if it comes to that. And in my own case, I look back at some of the cross teachers I had and so on. And while I don't condone what they did, and if it was my inner child, no, I would absolutely stop them. And there are people I have, you know, known and loved and been related to that I have to say, no, I can't go any further with this. And so you are entitled to that and you are entitled to stand up yourself. And, you, and there are some people who for their own safety or for our safety need actually to be incarcerated. So I'm, that's terribly sad. Because no one's beyond redemption. And most, I live in the city centre, and most of the lads I would talk to on the way to work or whatever, they're just soft people who are hurt. All of them are soft people who are hurt. And there's a part of me feels that, yeah, I am drawn all the time to scripture and to, not Christian or Islamic, all of them. The Tao Te Ching, Lao Tzu's beautiful little book, uh, I read all the time or I listen to it as an audio book. Also, Khalil Gibran, the Lebanese philosopher, wrote another tiny little book called The Prophet, uh, which was very trendy kind of back in the 60s with the hippies and all that. But that's fundamental as well. Go through it. And it's very hard to put a punch on it because the guy, like, even when he talks about giving, he says things like, you say that you would give, but only to the deserving. He said, look at the trees in the orchard. They give to the bad man as much as to the good man because the trees in their wisdom know that to withhold your fruit is to surely perish. So the point is, going around saying, well, my kids leave these hurts are so important, whatever about the other crowd. That's not love, that's preference. You know what I mean? Why, why, you know, I don't love my kids anymore than I love other people's kids. I have more responsibility towards them, even though they're nearly as old as myself now. Um, clearly, I have a history with them. I have an emotional attachment, but are they more important? Nah, nah. <laughs> so anyway, I'm sorry, I'm ranting, I'm preaching, but so I, I am curious about the human condition, and um, and 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 I, I see a lot of like social media in particular. This part of me wants to just back out of that cul-de-sac because there is it's like oil and water. I know I'd probably be attacked for saying this to you now, but if I was to go on Twitter this morning and to say something like Donald Trump, wish it, no matter how bad you are, I suppose losing something must be tough going. It's probably hard for him at the moment. That said, he is misogynistic. And he is rude, and he is he is um, 
he has been a nasty bit of work and he is racist and um I hope he retires and I hope he takes a bit of time to himself and I'd love to see him get better and become a happy man because none of us is beyond redemption and I hope Donald gets well soon. People would go one way or the other. How dare you be so condescending toward Donald? Or it would be, what are you talking about? He's a tramp, you know? And it's like, lads, 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 lads. To err is human, to forgive is divine. And I, I would always like to aspire towards the divine within me that, that I would try and be bigger than today's problem and just to try and to be as forgiving as I can. God, I sound like a lovely fellow, but I'm doing my best, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and fi- final question is obviously for the time of year that's in it, Christmas. Uh, I hear you're not into trees or decorations except for the crib. Tell me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I came from a very big family. I'm one of 12 kids and, and between the, 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 the children, my mom and dad, the two women who work for us, two aunts, that my mother had lived with us because they weren't doing well and there was a whole lot of other people uh, in bed sits in the side of the house it was a huge household it was about 30 I remember counting including cats and pigeons with broken wings and pet rabbits and dogs and everything else I remember counting like up to 40 hearts beating under our roof tonight when I was a kid you know just mad but but, but very loving and um, so Christmas was actually for us a big day because our shop was open 364 days of the year so I still remember very fondly my mom laid on the, the, the brandy, even though she never drank, my dad didn't drink. Um, you know, and I do remember that there was a day when the shop was kind of closed and it was special and Santa always came and he was brilliant. And he still is brilliant. But one of the things is that um, the whole, I think there's a kind of a red and a white to Christmas. And the red is the noise, it's the Santa, it's the Coca-Cola trucks, it's the shopping, it's the taillights, and it's almost red for rage. And then there's a white side to Christmas, which is candles, altar boys, snow, the crib, the quiet hush of Christmas. And so in my own house now, uh, because I don't have children um, here, um, I, what I do is I put up a crib. And and because I grew up in the city centre, we were blessed with about 20 great churches. And they used to try and outdo each other with moving cribs and everything else. So I've taken to uh, doing the cribs, man every Christmas Eve now. So rather than doing the 12 pubs of Christmas, I, I go for a few pints after maybe, but I, I would have been around and check out all the local cribs. So the one I have at home, I actually went out and kind of blew the budget. I spent, I don't know, about 150 quid on a decent crib last year. But it populated with not just an activity set. I also have a giraffe in there. There's a fire truck, other bits and pieces. So, so when my grandkids come up, you know what? Don't tell anybody. It's my opportunity of having a doll's house. I always wanted one as a kid. But anyway, so it's like a little doll's house. But for me, like genuinely, the tableau that's there in front of me is a refugee family. It's a family running from persecution in the Middle East. It reverberates today. And if you look at the story within, within the, the household, within that shed, are the beasts, mom and nature is represented there, the rich. All rich people aren't bad guys either, you know what I mean? So the three kings are there and they're loving and they're kind towards them. And uh, the shepherds are there. And hey, it's the whole community, including the cows, trying to keep warm. And to me, there's a lovely snug midwinter, but very topical. And, and it's universal. I think any great art should be timeless and universal. And that story applies to every part of the world in every century in which we have lived. Um, there's always someone under pressure and there's always someone sticking out a hand and being loving. And to me, it's just a lovely thing. And I love when all the other lights are off before I go to bed. And I kind of look back at it. And sometimes I might have to go back. I might have to take a camel out in case he keeps the baby awake, you know? 
Well, John, one thing is certainly for sure. I think myself and all our listeners want to see a photograph of the fire truck in the crib on your Twitter account <laughs> at some stage over Christmas. I, I think that I might have done that along the way. I certainly have. I think, <laughs> I, yeah, I think I put one out one day saying Credo's crib. And um, but you see, but you can, you know, but the, the, the youngsters or anybody can bring something along if they want. And you could even, you can even put an, an action man or toy soldiers in there, even guys with guns. <laughs> are welcome in my crib because they're only doing their best. We certainly want to see some photographs uh, of that. That is for sure. John Creedon, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and the very best of luck with the book, which is available in bookstores nationwide. Pop it up for us there. Folks, John Creedon's book, That Place We Call Home, is available in bookstores nationwide. As ever, you know where we are. We're real health at independent.ie, at Carl Henry PT on Twitter and on Instagram. Folks, that's it for today's episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Happy Christmas, have a great one, and we'll see you next week. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry.